Hey everybody, uh, this is Ruben dropping in at the top of the episode to let you know that this episode has heavy themes about um, mental health asylums. This is our trigger warning for anybody who has had a bad experience with that or uh, has had difficulty with um, any similar nursing home or anything like that where uh, we talk about some pretty heinous practices for quote-unquote mental health treatment uh, from the past up into the present. So if it's the whole episode, so if you're sensitive to that, this might be one you need to skip out on. We appreciate you listening to us, and we hope to see you next episode. Two Towns Over is a podcast where we explore the fascinating world of urban legends, conspiracy theories, and campfire tales to find out if there are any truths behind the legends. With dark humor and natural curiosity, we tackle the darkened streets of the town you all know. Welcome to the town with no name. This is Two Towns Over. The Oscars? Which one? I guess, uh, so Liza, Minnelli, Liza Minnelli and uh, Lady Gaga were presenting together. But Eliza Minnelli is like, she got diagnosed with something a while back. So she's like in a wheelchair and everything now. So she's she wasn't super with it. And she started like stumbling or something. And um, Lady Gaga looked down at her and was like, I got you. And Eliza Minnelli looked back up at her and was like, I know. Oh. Yeah. Aww. <laughs> and then Lady Gaga took it over. That's so good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So. Um, I had a lot of thoughts about it. And I think, just personally, that Jada ruined Will Smith's life. <laughs> Yeah, I will not elaborate because if you follow them at all in the oh, last yeah. few years, you know exactly yeah. why. I think that it's the entanglement. Not not even just that, but like they had the show like Red Button or whatever. Red the fuck. table, Red table. Mm-hmm. Yeah, everything they talk about on there is like so. That shit is like wow, Jada. That's very toxic. Like that's right. so toxic. Yeah, and people were like, "This is the only time Will Smith ever slapped somebody." He slapped like three other people. <laughs> Objectively, though. This is it the was worst a, time. It was a poor taste joke. It was. Objectively. Objectively, it was. Yeah. But a well, poor taste joke it's really, versus being live and maybe fucking up your career. Yeah. Slap him in the green room, dog. Yeah. Right. Exactly. But And it's only really a poor taste joke if Chris Rock knew she had alopecia. Which I believe he does, because apparently he runs some kind of like foundation or something for alopecia. Yeah, or so, some kind of uh, he's t- taken donations or something that's big, weird. That's ironic. Yeah, it was it was some weird thing. Like I saw somebody mentioning it. I not that's not confirmed. Don't quote me. But it there, he says on a podcast that is going out to everybody. <laughs> <laughs> Josh, oh, oh we're recording shit. this. Yeah, I'm re- oh, started recording. Yeah. Oh, well, in that case, I'll just say, like, I I truly believe that, you know, I don't necessarily have too many problems with the Smith family as a whole unit. But I think that Jada is, like, I say this to my friends sometimes, you can be in a toxic relationship without being with a toxic person. I think Jada is a toxic person. Maybe because of being in a relationship, or maybe not. But, like... I think that her and Will just didn't, they're not fucking working anymore. Like, I don't know what the fuck happened to him, but a lot of his problems seem to involve her name. Yeah. You want to start a pop, pop culture podcast along no. with this one? No. <laughs> no so are you don't. sure? I'm very sure. 
I don't follow it well enough to care that That's much. Right. It's we'll, just we'll that cover... I had a friend send me the the moment, and I was like, oh, shit, Will? <laughs> we'll cover all the things that people care about. You know, uh, death and urban legends. Yes. Uh, Dungeons and Dragons. One Piece. And yeah. this week's wackiest pop culture happenings. <laughs> My favorite part was when I saw the uh, his acceptance speech, yeah. and he was like, I'd like to apologize to the Academy and to my fellow nominees. Mm-hmm. And he didn't say, but I heard him say, but still fuck Chris Rock. <laughs> he like, apologized the next day well, on Instagram. Okay, well. Yeah, saying I apologize to Chris Rock. So welcome, everybody, to Two Towns Over Campfire Stories. Uh, I am Don. I'm Ruben, and we still haven't recorded the trigger warning for yeah, the last episode. Yeah. Well, Josh threw me off when he went and took a leak and ate nachos. I I had to go eat that nacho. I'm yeah. Josh, and uh, it's 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 been a ride. We've guys. had a day. We've had a, uh, a couple weeks. Uh, Seriously, though, stay tuned for that One Piece podcast. I will convince some of my friends <laughs> to do it eventually. Um, we you won't know um, unless you are on the Facebook page or. Um, well, no, that's really the only way you'll know. Um, yeah. We did not record last week because I had uh, some family uh, issues that needed to be dealt with. Um, and uh, I just want to do a little bit of housekeeping beforehand. Um, my father is basically dying of a brain tumor. And uh, it's it's been it's been rough uh, using kind of recording today as therapy uh just to kind of laugh and kind of uh get some things out but the reason i bring this up is because i have been introduced to a wonderful uh charity that i asked if it was okay just to give a shout out and that charity is fuckcancer.com hell yeah um their website is letsfcancer.com <laughs> but it's fuck cancer uh, basically, what Fuck Cancer does is, whereas most charities are doing things to try to end cancer or to find a cure for cancer, what Fuck Cancer does is they um, help with uh, early um, detection uh, and help people find ways, both the family and people suffering, with ways to handle uh, the diagnosis. They also send um, food or meals to people who are housebound and uh, they have a care line for, if you have any issues, you can call them and they will set you up with a, um, yeah, a therapist uh, that can talk to you, whether you are a patient or someone living with a cancer patient. Uh, you have to call and, and apply for the, um, have somebody set up. I'm sorry. I'm a little, all over the place here. It's all good. But, That's uh, good. It sounds like rather where a lot of them are out to find the cure. Right. Uh, they're out for the more proactive in the moment. Right. Yeah. They're there to try to this help better people. for you. Yeah. So mm-hmm. if you want to learn more about them or if you want to donate to them or you can set up and once we get going and we have enough people, more than likely I will try to talk the boys into doing a I fundraising. I would love to do a fundraiser. Either a fundraising live stream. Maybe we can do a and d thing one time for uh, mm-hmm. for. Uh, for fuck cancer yeah but, uh, definitely. anyways definitely yeah. check them out it's let's f cancer.com <laughs> I, I don't that's yeah. fuck cancer i get let's fuck cancer is different yeah. <laughs> no i love it yeah 
most people who know me have seen me wearing uh, a homemade Fuck Cancer shirt with Deadpool. Uh, that shirt has gotten me more attention than anything I've ever worn in my life. Um, you didn't wear the punk jacket that I wore in high school. I wore a Pink Floyd jacket. Did, that, did yours get you death threats? Uh, almost one time oh. because on the on the front ch- uh-huh. chest I had. Have you seen the wall? The movie yeah. The Wall or seen the album? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It my dad made cross, me watch it when I was way too young. It had the cross hammer thing, the Nazi cult that he oh. becomes. It's the cross hammer. Uh, that was on the shoulder patch. Not, I didn't think anything. It's from the movie, right? And the back of it was the prism from Dark Side of the Moon. And I was working a temp job at a juice bowl factory, and I was in the break room, and a black man came up to me, very large, very scary man, came up to me. I was wearing that jacket because it was the winter, and he's like, uh, "Can I have a word with you about your jacket there?" Oh boy! And I'm like, "What?" He goes, "You want to tell me what that symbol is?" I mean, he was. And I was like, it's from a movie. It's Pink Floyd, The Wall. And he goes, all right. And just turned around and walked away. <laughs> Ooh, <laughs> man. <laughs> so, yes, fuckcancer.com. Or, no, let's fcancer.com. But it's fuck cancer. Moral of that story is uh, be careful what you wear. Yeah, yeah. please please know about the symbols that know you Know about wear. the things that you're presenting. Yeah, I just never thought about it because it was from a movie. It was One last fuck cancer thing. I had a, a photography teacher in high school in Colorado that had uh, tattooed on the back of her neck fuck cancer. <laughs> she, yeah, she was a survivor. Most, and she, she would tell you all about fuck cancer. Yeah, most of the, the, the logos that I've seen, they, they're tricky. They use the... The awareness ribbon uh-huh. sideways. So the arch is the C and the two things that stick out are the K. Nice. Uh mine, my shirt that I, I mentioned, it uh um ah, uh Deadpool takes the place of the U and the C. So it's F Deadpool yeah, throwing uh-huh. up the fingers, K cancer. But uh anyways, last bit of housekeeping, and I swear to God, we got started here. Uh we need to call out, we got uh two new patrons. Since the last time we recorded, uh, I want to call out Carly. Uh, that's I, I know her last name, but her name on the thing is Carly. <laughs> so I'm not going to say her last name, but Carly, you know who you it's are. Probably for the best. And uh, Whitney Ketchum has Just in joined general. us. Yeah. So, is that pa- Ash Ketchum's sister? No, it's his mom. Ask her. Oh, hell yeah. Uh, so, <laughs> I think, doesn't his mom actually have a name? Who's Ash Ketchum? Oh, that's from Pokemon. Pokemon. How dare you? Sorry. Everybody flame this man. Yes. <laughs> yeah, after I just gave the sob story about my father. Let's go ahead and flame me now. That's, that's nice. For not knowing Pokemon characters. Her yeah. name is uh, Delia. Ah. No, sorry. So if you want to change your name. Her affiliation. Oh, never mind. Ash Ketchum's affiliations are Ultra Guardians of the Aether Foundation. <laughs> so Whitney, you're more than welcome to change your name to Delia if you want to make Ruben super happy. I don't give a fuck about Pokemon. I just, your last <laughs> name is Ketchum. All. Yes. Gotta. So today we're going to uh, talk a little bit about, um, I don't know. So today's episode, we're going to be talking about the Bethlehem um, Royal Hospital in England. Mm. Now, uh, it was also known as St. Mary Bethlehem, Bethlehem Hospital. And then finally, it earned the nickname Bedlam, which is actually Bedlam, Bedlam, which is actually where we get the word Bedlam from. Really? Yes. yes. This is the first urban legend that has changed English language. Oh, well, it's not an yes. urban legend, okay. but the first story we've done. Right. 
So um, the oh, hospital. Oh, that's cool. I would like watch a YouTube video about that and find out <laughs> and think it was really cool, but I get to find out live in front of everyone. Yeah. <laughs> so the hospital is closely associated with King's College London and in partnership with the Institute of Psychiatry, Psychology, and Neuroscience is a major center for psychiatric research. Just want to point out that the word bedlam changed our language in almost exactly the same way that Murica entered the lexicon. Oh, my God. <laughs> like, you ever been to Bethlehem Hospital? Oh, you mean Bedlam, bedlam Hospital. Yeah. Oh, why do you say it like that? Because they don't deserve my respect. <laughs> <laughs> so it's part of the King's Health Partners Academic Health Science Center and an NIHR Biomedical Research Center for Mental Health. Now, it was originally founded in 1247. Um, the hospital... Jesus was originally near Bishopsgate, just outside of the walls of the city of London. It moved a short distance to Mooresfield in 1676 and then to St. George's Field in Southwark in 1815 before moving to its current location in Monk's Orchard in 1930. Uh, now, like I said, the word bedlam, meaning uproar and confusion, is derived from the hospital's nickname. Now, although the hospital became a modern psychiatric facility, historically... It was representative of the worst excesses of asylums in an era of lunacy reform. Its famous history has inspired several horror movies, our horror books, films, and TV series, most notably this movie Bedlam, a 1946 film starring Boris Karloff. You guys are going to have to interact here. <laughs> I don't know who Boris Karloff is. Dracula, the original oh. Dracula. Oh, yeah. Oh, now I know who. Yeah, okay, cool. So, Bethlehem Hospital was a London landmark so famous that tourists would visit uh, visit it alongside Westminster Abbey and the London Zoo. Mm. It was so notorious that the very name came to mean madness and chaos. It inspired countless poems, dramas, and works of art. I've already read that. Good God. Really bad. At the building, and the building it is housed in from, it was housed in from 1976. Uh, I'm so do so we need to take a break? No, we're good. Okay. <laughs> and the building it was housed in from 1676 appeared so opulent that it was compared to none other than the Palace of Versailles. Damn. That's yeah. No, that's saying a lot. That's yeah. crazy. The Palace of Versailles. Jesus Christ. I remember seeing pictures of it in high school and losing my mind in the modern day. Yeah. So almost from the start, Bethlehem was much more than a mental asylum. It was a landmark in the city of London, right by Bishop's Gate. And it was also one of the very first to specialize in people who were called mad or lunatic. It becomes this proverbial archetypal home of madness as Mike J, author of the book, The Way Madness, or This Way Madness Lies. Interesting. So it was, it was, read that line again. It was the first. It was the first, uh, the very first hospital to specialize in people who were called mad or lunatic. I hope they did it right. They didn't. <laughs> oh, no, they didn't. I could tell. I could have told you that just because it's on our podcast. Yeah, right. Now, this this book, The Way This Way Madness Lies, is published, was published to accompany the exhibition. Yeah, the, the, the hospital whose name is literally synonymous with madness and chaos did yeah. it right. Yeah. First no, try. No, I don't believe it. Uh, it was published to accompany the exhibition Bedlam, The Asylum and Beyond, now at London's Welcome Collection. Any asylum is called bedlam is called a bedlam quite early on. Then it becomes a generic term, and then it becomes then it's something that means more than an asylum. There are all these metaphors of the world being a great bedlam. That's another quote from Mike J. 
Now, Bethlehem is Europe's oldest center devoted solely to the treatment of mental illness. The facility was... Quote, unquote, treatment. Treatment, yeah. yeah uh, they're the facility them. was founded by the Italian bishop Goffredo de Perfetti. That sounds delicious, and I'm sorry. <laughs> hey, That's man. all. I'm sorry. Anybody ever tell you your name sounds kind of g- delicious? <laughs> hey, my name is Ruben. Yeah, he's yeah, named you, after a sandwich. So pretty good sandwich. Too. I actually lied. I'm not sorry. Because <laughs> every time I say, hi, I'm Ruben, everybody's like, like the sandwich? Mm-hmm. No, motherfucker, like the person. <laughs> like, <laughs> now You um, should say, yeah, because I'm a whole snack. I do sometimes. Yeah, I figured you had to beat me to it. You've been hearing it your whole life. You've had way more prep time than mm-hmm, me for that joke. Mm-hmm. Now, it was also built directly... <laughs> sometimes I'd be like, and the side of fries it came with. <laughs> it was built directly atop a sewer that frequently overflowed. Um, cool. This is 1200s sewers systems. Oh, so. Very cool. Yeah. yeah. Good. That's the one thing that people never think about when they're like, I wish I could time travel back to like the Renaissance just yeah. to see. You think New York smells bad? You won't you won't pass out. Yeah. Like the second you smell what Renaissance era France smelled like. <laughs> or people who want to go back to the old West. Yeah, no. Yeah. Everybody smells like the worst BO that you have ever smell smelt yeah. in modern day. Mm-hmm. Not to mention what happens if you like break a bone in the Midwest or something or Old West, not the Midwest. Sorry, Midwest people. If you break a bone in Minnesota, you are fucked. If it's a, if it's a clean <laughs> They're break. They're just going to cut it off. If it's a clean break, any Minnesotan doctor can put it back. But if it's a compound fracture, you're just screwed. <laughs> Sorry, I meant the Old Excuse West. Excuse me, any Old West doctor. <laughs> <Yeah>. <sighs> okay, so... <laughs> We got one listener in Minnesota that's like, no, 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 you're right. <laughs> so it originally served not Minnesota as... is the Florida of the Midwest. <laughs> so good it, at gunshot wounds and nothing else. Yeah. So it originally Minnesota served northern. It originally Never. served not as a sanctuary for the insane. But yeah, the, in the same way that Florida is southern. <laughs> uh, but it it was it was built to help raise money for the Crusades via alms collection. Now, during this time, it was not uncommon for monks and other religious figures to take the take in the indig, dinj, uh, indigent who were often mentally ill. Wow, I thought you were going to say indigenous. No. Indig, indig, <laughs> in, oh I thought God. you were going to say indignant. Indigent? Is indigent. that what you said? Thank you. Okay. Indigent, yes. It'll be a long-ass episode. <laughs> <laughs> when exactly Bethlehem's mission transformed from the collection of alms to the treatment of the mentally ill is unclear. But by 1330, the institution was being referred to as a hospital, and by 1377, historians believe it had become known exclusively to, as the home for the insane. The home for infinite losers? Yes. That's a Dragon Ball Z one. <laughs> Little <laughs> is known of the institution's inner workings during the medieval period, but by the 1600s, control was transferred from the church to the state. I'm sure we can figure oh, what boy. the Great. treatment of the medieval period was like. Oh, boy. fucking frying pan meat fire (laughs) yeah it's gonna get real bad from that point on like even the church wouldn't treat you well the church but yep the church is definitely that frying pan it's uncomfortable but you might make it Mm -hmm. fire state (laughs) yeah 
So the appointment of the masters, later known as keepers, had laid within the patronage of the crown until 1547. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Shit, I'm, tr- yo. Um, I'm right there with you. Thereafter, the city, through the court of aldermen, took control, and as with the king's appointees, the office was used to reward loyal servants and friends. Compared to the masters placed by the monarch, those who gained the position through the city were of much more modest status. In 1561, the Lord Mayor succeeded in having his former porter, Richard Munns, a draper by trade, appointed to the position. Does uh, that mean hospital. curtains or does that mean like finery? Does he just generally drape things over other things? Not sure. Like For is a that living? a... Wh- like I don't know. Is it like I'm a, a man literally asking, is it like an interior decorating thing or is it like a... Finery, you make like drapery for people, like um, for like. I, f- I feel like it's the latter. Probably. I feel like that's probably like because like robes and stoles and shit. Yeah, a draper is a person who sells cloth and dry goods. Ah, there you go. Then they put him okay. in charge of a mental institution. Wow, <laughs> it's hey you you you're the guy that sells all of those like blankets and stuff, right? It's basically a haberdasher. Right, yeah, you're you're the, you're the town haberdasher, right? He's you want to run an insane asylum? It's like literally a draper is medieval Joannes. Yes, <laughs> yeah, yeah, perfect. So uh, you found it, <laughs> like straight up. Now the so qualification of uh, Munn's successor, the draper's successor, uh, in 1567, a man by the name of Edward Rest appears to have been his occupation as a grocer. Great. Yo, these people sound great to be put in charge of people with severe mental health disorders in the 1300s. Right. Why did they take these people that just run like normal town shops? Like they literally just went knocking on doors like, you want to well, run an insane asylum? Freud hadn't been invented yet. Yeah. Because was... as we all know, um, Einstein invented Freud. So, uh, yeah, this was also at the time when the moon caused insanity. Or excuse me, yeah. cocaine invented Freud. <laughs> uh, rest... Edward Rest died in uh, 1571, at which point the keepership passed on to John Mell in 1576. A man who sold milk. <laughs> uh, does not say. It just says, known for his abuse of the governors, those who gave money to the poor and the poor themselves, the Bridewell governors largely interpreted the role of keeper as that of a house manager. And this is clearly reflected in the occupations of, the, of most appointees as they tended to be innkeepers, victuallers, or brewers, and the like. Yo, so they were just basically hiring target managers to yeah. run the asylum. Yeah. Holy fuck. Now, when patients were sent to Bethlehem by the governors of the Bridewell, uh, the keeper was paid from hospital funds. For the remainder, keepers were paid either by the families and friends of inmates or by the parish authorities. This story just reminds me to just remind everybody who's like, I was born in the wrong era. No, the fuck you weren't. Yeah. Right. Yes. You were not. You just weren't. The further back you go, the worse it gets. Absolutely. For everybody. Mm -hmm. For everyone. All the girls that want to be hippies realize that uh, you couldn't get a credit card until like the late 70s. Right. Without your husband. So it is possible that keepers negotiated their fees for those uh, latter categories of patients. So they they would negotiate with family and friends. John Mel's death in 1579 left the keepership open for the long term. Keeper Roland Slefford, a London cloth maker, who left his post in 1598. So we've even downgraded from the draper right. to the motherfucker who makes it. Yeah. Yep. 
he really just anyone, just yeah. any motherfucker off the street. So he, yeah, he he left. Oh my god, he left in 1598, apparently of his own volition after a 19 year tenure. Pro tip: accept that you're going to be distracted for a while on some ADHD shit. Accept it and just okay. Don't let yourself get frustrated with it. <laughs> just understand that it's going to happen and enjoy the ride. <laughs> So two months later, the Bridewell governors, who had until then showed little interest in the management of Bethlehem beyond the appointment of keepers, conducted an inspection of the hospital and a census of its inhabitants for the first time in over 40 years. Their purpose was to... What? Yeah. (laughs) 40 years? Yeah. Yo! So their purpose was to view and peruse the defaults and want of reparations. They found that during this period of Slefford's keepership, the hospital buildings had fallen into a deplorable condition with the roof caving in and the kitchen sink blocked. So it's an inspection. Yeah. Okay. Okay. See, I've never heard the word perused used in a job description before. Really? No. (laughs) This is the 1300s. Yeah. Yeah, I know. They're they're there to look around and make an assessment of what needs to be repaired, I believe, is what we would say now. Yep. And they reported that it is not fit for any man to dwell in which was left by the keeper, for that is so loathsomely filthy or filthily kept, not fit for any man to come into the house. Hey, your hospital is so fucking dirty and gross that we can't let people be here. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Got it. Yeah. The committee of inspection found 21 inmates with only two having been admitted during the previous 12 months. What the fuck? Yeah. Of the remainder, six at least had been resident for a minimum of eight years. Boy! Yeah, and one inmate uh, had been there for around 25 years. Jeez. Holy shit. Three were from outside London. Six were charitable cases paid for out of the hospital's resources. One was supported by a parochial authority, and the rest were provided by family, friends, benefactors, or in one instance, out of their own funds. Now, the reason for the governor's newfound You know interest, how desperate you got to be to pay somebody to put you in a mental asylum in the 1300s? Right. Yeah. Or in the 1500s now. 1500s? Even, yeah. Okay. So 200 years after the word bedlam became a thing. Yeah. Right. Do you understand how crazy you have to feel to do that? Yeah. Uh, the reason for the governor's newfound interest in Bethlehem is unknown, but it may have been connected to the increased scrutiny the hospital was coming under with the passing of the poor law legislation in 1598 and to the decision by the governors to increase hospital revenues by opening it up to the general visitors as a spectacle. Yo, mm-hmm. what? good Lord, just yeah. go and walk people around the people yes, zoo. Basically. Yeah. Holy and they, they, fuck. they were touted as the freaks. The oh, world is worse sometimes than <laughs> I thought. So after this inspection, the governors initiated some repairs and visited the hospital at more frequent intervals. During one such visit in 1607, they ordered the purchase of clothing and eating vessels for the inmates, presumably indicating a lack of such basic items. Jesus. By the 17th century, the asylum was well known enough to to appear in numerous Jacobian dramas and ballads. Often, as in Shakespeare's play Hamlet and Macbeth, it was used as a way to explore the popular question of who was mad, who was sane, and who had the power to decide. The last section of Thomas... So nothing new. Yeah. I did not pay attention in high school (laughs) English class. Nah, none of us did. The last section of Thomas Decker and Thomas Middleton's 1604 comedy, The Honest Whore Part 1, shows this permeability between sanity and madness 
and the fear of how easy it would be to slip from one to the other. The asylum sweeper says cheerfully, I sweep the madmen's rooms and fetch straw for them and buy chains to tie them and rods to whip them. I was a mad wag myself here once, but I thank Father Anselm. He'd lash me to, into my right mind again. Jesus. That's not how it works. So after the hospital was rebuilt, it became even easier to satirize the slippage between sane and insane. And no small part thanks to its opulent architecture. This was the one that was compared to uh, the Palace, Palace of Versailles. Yeah. When the second version of the hospital was constructed in 1676, it was unlike any asylum before. Designed by Robert Hooke, a city surveyor, natural philosopher, and assistant to Christopher Wren, its 540-foot-long facade, complete with Corinthian columns and cupola-topped turrets, was inspired by Louis XVI's Turelles Palace in Paris. Why? And it, it was originally built to be the asylum, uh, the asylum yeah. right? Yeah. So yeah. what the fuck? Mm-hmm. Um, I think architects back then were just like, can I do this? And they were like, can we still use it to put all the, the people we don't like in? He's like, yeah. <laughs> They're like, yeah, go nuts. <laughs> Pretty much. It feels correct. Oh, well, it was also a church building. Oh. Yeah. It was owned by the church originally, right? Yeah. So, one. yeah, they would try to make it all opulent and shit. It looked church over formal everything. gardens with tree-lined promenades. The overall impression was of a French king's opulent estate at Versailles, not of an asylum. As one writer, writer put it in 1815, it was for many years the only building which looked like a palace in London. Two ominous statues were installed. As a modern-day American, that's crazy to think about. Right. Yeah. So two ominous statues were installed over the entrance gate, one named Melancholy, who appeared calm, and the other named Raving Madness, who was chained and angry. According to Jay, it was... Do you know what would make me real angry? What? Getting chained down. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So That would do it. According to Jay, it was part of an attempt to recreate London as something grand and modern instead of the old medieval timber warrens that were part of London con- that were that the that that part of London consisted of before the fire. And it was a kind of civic pride and it was a sense of charitable mission that that this was going to make London a grander and better place for everybody, a palace for lunatics it was often called. For the first time, meanwhile, private asylums were beginning to open up in the city. The new design was, yeah, the new design was also an attempt to stay on top of what was becoming a contested market. Then as now, oh, some great. of the city's most jaw-dropping buildings were spurred on by cap- capitalist competition. What? No way. Now, the interior Part for the fucking course. Yeah, the interior and reality of the hospital though was altogether different. This is the beginning of capitalism you're hearing about. We yes. live in the end of it. Because of the or, because the ornate facade was so heavy, it immediately cracked at the back. Whenever it rained, the walls ran with water. And as ho- as the hospital was built on a, the rubble next to the city's Roman wall, it didn't even have a proper foundation. Cool. <laughs> now the new hospital was quite literally putting a pretty face on what many Londoners saw as messy as a messy distasteful problem. Yeah, that's yeah. kind of what I figured. Well, yeah. good. I'm glad at least. A lot of Londoners had a problem with it. You know, I would have imagined back then everyone was like, yeah, that's just what you do with the crazy people. Mm -hmm. But Uh, no, there was some sense. So that's good. Jay wrote in his book, you had this weird creaking, collapsing building from the very beginning. Yeah, we didn't invent empathy now. 
Yeah, yeah, well... Other people could have been like, I wouldn't want to live there if I was sick. Yeah, Right, but we have refined empathy to where now... We have better words. Everybody knows that this is... Like, for the most part, the vast majority of people know that this is wrong now. Yeah. But back then, you had people that were running it like that, and plenty of people who thought that that was the best possible thing you could do, and then a good section of people who just didn't care. Yeah. So, kind of like today. <laughs> yeah, but I feel like the empathetic part of that equation is larger now than it was back then. I think you underestimate the power of bubbles. Of bubble? Oh, yeah, yeah, you're right. Especially today. Yep. But. This is a, this is, this, this, I mean, I've been in uh, mental health facilities before, and it does not sound different. Yeah. An opulent building that once you walk inside, it's falling apart and kind of leaky and very uncomfortable. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's like it's the same shit. It's the That's same. everybody's searching for structure. funding. Uh, even the private ones, everybody's searching for funding, mm-hmm. and they all have their own gimmick that doesn't work. And yeah. like, it's just it's all the same. They treat you better now. They don't torture you literally, yeah. right? But like, it's very similar. It's not that different. It's, we make it- progress slowly as as a as a collective unit. Yeah, but it is overall generally better now. I would still say that unless your situation is very extreme, don't go. Oh, yeah. Because it, it don't go. So Jay continued, it was a contrast everyone picked up on at, at the time. This grand facade and how grim it was on the inside. As ever more, schizophrenics, epileptics, and those with learning disabilities crowded into the facility. Bethlehem twisted into bedlam, and patient treatment took a turn for the sinister. One such approach was rotational therapy. The patient would be placed in a chair and suspended from the ceiling. The chair was then spun at the direction of a doctor, sometimes at more than 100 rotations a minute. What the fuck? Yeah. The patient would often vomit and experience extreme vertigo. Yeah. But these were seen as healthy reactions with the potential for healing. Put... One doctor in that chair. Right. Patients were also victim to bloodletting by leeches, cupping glass therapy, and the induction of blisters. Yeah, that whole cupping glass thing still doesn't fucking work. Remember when all those Olympians were doing it? Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it it didn't doesn't work. <laughs> Treatment was so severe that the facility refused to admit any patient deemed too meek to withstand it. Get the fuck out. Yeah. So if, if you didn't show that you could handle the treatment, you didn't get help. Boy, I hate old help. medieval fucking... Well, God damn it. In their opinion, it was help. Right. Um, indeed, many did... Okay. Indeed, many did not survive. Modern investigation... Yeah, how the fuck do you recognize that as help? Yeah. Modern investigation has uncovered mass graves on the property dug exclusively for those who died under Bethlehem's care. Jesus Christ. In 1728, James Monroe became Bethlehem's chief physician, initiating a Monroe family dynasty that lasted for roughly four generations. Fucking A. I always imagine like when when you get to something that's like they had to make their own personal like grave site, their their mass grave. How is that helping anybody? Yeah. Like imagine being the person who was building that and they're like, we're building what again? Mass grave. Isn't this a like mental health? Isn't this a hospital? Right. Yeah, aren't you supposed to be helping people? Yeah, a lot of them die from the help. Yeah. And you're like, oh, okay, makes sense. And you go back to digging. 
So uh, as the Monroe shifted their focus from apothecaries to surgeons, treatment procedures grew worse. No way. Patients were routinely beaten, starved, and dunked in ice-cold baths. Because that will help somebody with mental health disorders. Well, it's supposed to reset your brain. That's not how your brain works. At this point, it's less of them trying to help and more of them just having a they're a bunch of sociopaths they're with not a trying big to place. help and they're not sociopaths what they're doing is the same thing that people do with autistic people they're trying to force them to act like they think they should act extremely they're trying to force a neurodivergent person to act like a neurotypical person and because it doesn't work they're getting more and more extreme that is all it is just 100 percent human it's not about sociopath. It's not about evil. It's just how brains work. It's if you want a result and you believe you are the person who can get that result and you're not getting that result, you're going to try more and more extreme things to get that result. It's the same reason that gamers throw their controllers through screens. You're trying very hard to do a thing that you think you can do and the game won't let you. Right. The brain won't let me, so I'm just going to fucking kill it. Yeah. See, I was thinking along the lines of like Stanford prison experiment type thing where no, it's it's even worse than that. Right. No, it is. It's much worse. But yes, it's because you and I could get caught in that cycle. We're human. It, it, you, you want a thing so badly that you blind yourself to every other possibility. It happens every day. Everybody does it. And the only problem is, is that when the people in power have it, the people who don't have any power to speak for themselves because you've labeled them as insane. Your words don't matter. You're insane. You can't, your opinions don't matter. We're going to fix you or you're, or we're going to kill you trying. Right. Is what they're thinking. Like it's a very human thing. Like it took however many couple hundred years to get here. Yeah. And that's my point is it's like, that's why I say it's not that different. Right. Well, that it still has a fuck ton of the, of a way to go, even though it's been 200 years. That's how slowly Actually, we progress. Oh, yeah. 200 years. Yeah. Well, that's what I'm saying is why it's not that different today is because there are still orderlies and things that are way too rough or too Yeah, extreme. you hear about it all the time. All the time. Like nursing homes even are known for it. Yes. Like that because you're trying to get a result from a human person and that human person does not have the capability to do the things you want them to do. And so because your brain and your body can do it and you're looking at this person like, Oh, they're a human too. They've got the same brain and same bones and shit. Right. Why can't they do it? Cause they can't. It's that simple. They just can't. They're not built like you. <laughs> Doctors from the 1500s fucking better listen up. So one such doctor, William Black, wrote his dissertation on insanity in 1811 and said of Bethlehem, the straight weight coat, waist coast, fuck me, the straight waistcoat when necessary and occasional purgatives are the principal remedies. Jesus Christ. Visits by friends and relatives were allowed. Straight jackets and laxatives just to translate. Yep. Friends and fellow uh, visits by friends and relatives were allowed, and it was expected that the family and friends of poor inmates would bring food and other essentials for their survival. Bethlehem was and is best known for the fact that it is all, it, it also allowed public 
and casual visitors with no connection to the inmates. This display of madness as public show has often been considered the most scandalous feature of the historical bedlam. Scandalous, yes. The worst, no. Not even close. One of the basis on the basis of circumstantial evidence, it is speculated that the Bridewell governors may have decided in as early as 1598 to allow public visitors as a means of raising hospital income. Jesus. The only other reference to visiting in the 16th century is provided in a common in Thomas More's 1522 treatise, The Four Last Things, where he observed that thou shalt in Bedlam see one laugh at the knocking of his head against the post. As More occupied a variety of official positions that might have occasioned his calling to the hospital, and as he lived nearby, his visits provided no compelling evidence that public visitation was widespread. Like, okay... I have a really good way to describe what I was trying to say a little bit ago. Mental health, quote unquote, treatment at the time was a lot like if you've ever heard a story of a nonverbal kid's parent, like abusing them because they can't get them to say words. That's what's happening. It's like that parent might not hate that kid. They might not want to be abusing them, but what they are doing is trying in their head they are trying to prepare their child to live on their own later in life. Even if it's subconsciously. Even if it's subconsciously. Like, but what you're actually doing is traumatizing a human person. Right. Yeah. Like a spanking or a grounding or a you go to bed without dinner is not going to make your child say please any better. Yeah. Like they're they can't, they don't they can't talk for whatever reason. Take them to fucking therapy. Like talk to them. Try to communicate. Verbally is not the only way you can communicate. But just because I can't talk doesn't mean I can't get my ideas across. Or just because I can't think in the same ways that you do does not mean that I cannot be understood. Anyway. <laughs> So the first apparently definitive documentation of public visiting uh, derives from a 1610 record in which that which details Lord Percy's payment of 10 shillings for the privilege of rambling through the hospital to view its deranged denizens. It was also at this time, and perhaps not coincidentally, that Bedlam was first used as a stage setting with the public with the publication of the aforementioned The Honest Whore Part One in 1604. Evidence that the number of visitors uh, rose following the move to Moorfields and provided in the observation is provided in the observation by the Bridewell governors in 1681 of the great quantity of persons that come daily to see the said lunatic. Eight years later, the English merchant and author Thomas Tyron remarked disapprovingly <coughs> that swarms of people that descended upon Bethlehem during public holidays. In the mid-18th century, a journalist of a topical periodical noted that at one time during Easter week, 100 people at least were to be found visiting Bethlehem's inmates. Hi. um, Just here to remind everybody that gay conversion camps still exist, and it's the same thing. Uh, Evidently, Bethlehem was a popular attraction, yet there is no credible basis to calculate the annual number of visitors. The claim, still sometimes made that Bethlehem received 96,000 visitors annually is speculative in the extreme. Nevertheless, it has been established that the pattern of visiting was highly seasonal and concentrated around holiday periods. 
as Sunday visiting was severely curtailed in 1650 and banned seven years later, the peak periods became Christmas, Easter, and a holiday called White Sun. Here's the thing. What the fuck? Yeah. They just Why, though? Like, really, though? Why? I'm thinking... For the why same, would the same reason wanna... as the Coliseum is... Yeah. Yeah. The same reason that there were freak shows at carnivals and... Uh, the same reason that in the modern day you see people get embarrassed on national television having a genuinely terrible time, like like on American Idol, when yeah. they when they put on the purposely the worst contestants and they laugh at them. The same yeah. reason is that. Yeah. Except that's not even the same. I mean, no, but it's like you the put it well last time. People zoo. Like, yeah. how do you not know that that's bad? Do you know what I mean? Like, how do you not just automatically know that that is not cool? Like, I don't care what social period of time you even come from. Like, you wouldn't do it for a regular hospital. If these people are in a hospital and they are sick, I don't want to go look at sick people for fun. I think like, there was probably also like a weird marketing type aspect to that's it what I'm from saying. The, the hospital. Itself. I mean, I'm yeah. loosely hospital. Yeah. This episode is just me talking about how stigmas have not changed that much in hundreds of years, and we should do better. So the governors actively sought out people of note and quality, the educated, wealthy, and well-bred as visitors. So they, they you know, the elite are the ones that they visit. Makes a lot more sense now. The limited evidence would suggest that the governors enjoyed some success in attracting such visitors of quality. In this visitors sense, of quality. Get yeah. the fuck out of here. In this elite and idealized model of charity and moral benevolence, the, necess- the necessity of spectacle, the showing of the mad as to excite compassion, was a central component in the elicitation of donations, uh, benef- benefactors, and legacies. You're dehumanizing people to make money. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Nor was the practice of showing the poor and unfortunate to potential donation donors. As a, as a mentally ill black man in America, I'm very angry. <laughs> um, Exploitation is the worst thing. And yes, yeah, so nor, nor was the practice of showing the poor and unfortunate to potential donators exclusive to the foundling hospital or to Bethlehem. Uh, was exclusive to Bethlehem as similar spectacles of misfortune were performed for public visitors to the Foundling Hospital and Magdalen Hospital for penitent prostitutes. The donations expected of visitors to Bethlehem, there never was an official fee, probably grew out of the monastic custom of almsgiving to the poor. While a substantial proportion or proportion of such monies undoubtedly found their way into the hands of staff rather than the hospital's poor box, Bethlehem profited considerably for such from such charity, collecting on average between 300 pounds and 350 pounds annually from the 1720s until the curtailment of visiting in 1770. Holy shit. That was a fortune then, too. Thereafter, the poor's box monies declined to about 20 or 30 pounds per year. Now, aside from its fundraising function, the spectacle of Bethlehem offered more instruction for visiting strangers. For the quote-unquote educated observer, Bedlam's theater of the disturbed might operate as a cautionary tale providing a deterrent uh, example of the dangers of immorality and vice. Get what? Basically, uh, these people sinned. 
Yeah. Yep. Exactly. And, yep. and that's why they're being and that's why they're here. in here. Mm-hmm. So the mad on display function as a moral example of what might happen if the passions and appetites were allowed to dethrone reason. It's fuck? like in my elementary school in Alabama, we went on a field trip to uh, the jail. Yeah. yeah. Yep. Yeah. Same and, shit. And they like have this big case where they like show us all the different shivs and shanks that have been confiscated from people in the jail and all this. When 90% of those fucking things are made because a crazy person is in here. Right. And I need to be able to defend myself if right. they attack me. Right. So as one mid 18th century correspondent commented, there was like, a- like these, these fucking places only encourage you to be violent and crazy mm-hmm. because that's how you survive it. Yeah. Like it's just anyway. Um, uh, there is no better lesson to be taught us in any part of the globe than in this school of misery. Here we may see the mighty reasoners of the earth below even the insects that crawl upon it. And from so humbling a sight, we may learn to moderate our pride and to keep those passions within bounds, which if too much indulged would drive reason from her seat and level us with the wretches of this unhappy mansion. Now, whether persons of quality or not, the primary allure for visiting strangers was neither moral edification nor the duty of charity, but its entertainment value. By Roy Porter's memorable phrase, what drew them was the frisson of the freak show, where Bethlehem was a rare diversion to cheer and amuse. It became one of a series of destinations to the London Tourist Trail, which included such sites as the London Tower, the London Zoo, Bartholomew Fair, London Bridge, and Whitehall. Curiosity about Bethlehem's attractions, its remarkable characters, including figures such as Nathaniel Lee, the dramatist, and Oliver Cromwell's porter, Daniel, was at least until the end of the 18th century quite a respectable motive for visiting. From the 1770s, free public access ended with the introduction of a system whereby visitors required a ticket signed by the governor. Oh, okay. I thought I, I was picturing like a carnival ticket. Yeah, that's what I was thinking too. Yeah, I was like, great. Now they are literally selling tickets. Yeah. So they basically need a certificate. Yeah. Visiting subjected Bethlehem's patients to many abuses, including being poked with sticks by visitors. Jesus Christ. Or otherwise taunted, given drinks, and physically assaulted or sexually harassed. But its curtailment removed an important element of public oversight. In that period, there in the period thereafter, with staff practices less open to public scrutiny, the worst patient abuses occurred. The late 18th and early now they're not letting people in all the time. How yeah. fucked is that? Yeah, that the higher end of how you can be treated at this place is if people are going to come in there and grope you and hit you with sticks, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. But now, now that that's not happening and the public won't see anything at all. They have all this extra time, too, because they're not doing these weird fucking tours. Yeah. So the late 18th and early 19th centuries are typically seen as decisive in the emergence of new attitudes towards the management and treatment of the insane. Increasingly, the emphasis shifted from the external control to the mad or control of the mad through physical restraint and coercion to their moral management, whereby self-discipline would be inculcated through a system of reward and punishment. Mostly punishment. Yeah. For proponents of lunacy... Because, again, they cannot do what you want them to do. Right. right. Like, that's their official description, mm-hmm. but that's supposed to make it sound like it's going to work. It's not. 
for proponents of lunacy reform, like, I don't care how often you give a nonverbal kid a lollipop for making a grunt. If they can't talk, they can't talk. Right. I don't care how often you beat them for not being able to say a whole sentence. They can't say a whole sentence. It's out of their control. For proponents of lunacy performed, the Quaker run York retreat founded in 1796 functioned as an exemplar of this new approach that would seek to re-socialize and re-educate the mad. Bethlehem. Again, gay conversion is still a thing. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Bethlehem embroiled in, embroiled in scandal. From, that's just as bad still too. That's what yeah, I'm trying like, to get at. That, that that's why get. I say it's like, yeah, maybe your actual mental health facilities are way better at it now. Sure. They're still kind of bad. Like, even though the people that work there want to be doing good, the policies set in place are sometimes counterintuitive. Like, but like gay conversion camps still exist and they are exactly as bad as we're hearing now. And, um, there's this whole subculture of like, um, these quote unquote summer reform camps for kids oh, where like yeah. you can literally pay to have your child kidnapped and tortured for a month. Yeah. Like kids have died and shit like in the two thousands. Like it's still this bad. It just depends on how you label it. Yeah. Uh, and it flies under the radar now too is the yeah. thing that's fucked up. Yes. It's not so much that it flies under the radar. We just don't look at the radar. No, it's that the radar is full of so much other shit that it does you it is it's noise. It's noise in the background. It's yeah. all white noise now. So Bethlehem, embroiled in a scandal from eighteen fourteen over its inmate conditions, would come to symbolize the antithesis of this new uh approach. Through newspaper reports initially and then evidence given to the eighteen fifteen Parliamentary Committee on Madhouses. The state of inmate care in Bethlehem was chiefly publicized by Edward Wakefield, a Quaker land agent and leading advocate of lunacy reform. He visited Bethlehem several times during the late spring and early summer of 1814. His inspections were of the old hospital at the Moorfields site, which was then in such a state of disrepair, much of it was uninhabitable and the patient population had been significantly reduced. Contrary to the tenets of moral treatment, Wakefield found that the patients in the galleries were not classified in any logical manner as both highly disturbed and uh, quiet patients were mixed together indiscriminately. Later, when reporting on the chained and naked state of many patients, Wakefield sought to describe their conditions in such a way as to maximize the horror of the scene while decrying the apparently bestial treatment of an inmates and the thuggish nature of the asylum keepers. Wakefield's account focused on one patient in particular, a man by the name of James Norris, who was an American Marine reported to be 55 years of age, who had been detained in Bethlehem since February 1st of 1800. Housed in an incurable wing of the hospital, Norris had been continuously restrained for about a decade in a harness apparatus which severely restricted his movement. Wakefield stated that a stout iron ring was riveted about his neck, from which a short chain passed to a ring made to slide upwards and downwards in an upright massive iron bar. More than six feet high, inserted into the wall, round his body a strong iron bar about two inches wide was riveted. On each side of the bar was a circular projection, which being fashioned to and enclosing each of his arms, pinioned them close to his sides. 
The waist bar was secured by two similar iron bars, which passing over his shoulders was riveted to the waist both before and behind. The iron ring from about his neck was connected to the bars on his shoulders by a double link. From each of these bars, another short chain passed to the ring on the upright bar. He had remained thus encaged and chained more than 12 years. So they left oh him like literally God. zero movement. Right. Oh not not even being able to move his neck like mm-hmm. around. Yeah. Jesus Christ. Wakefield's revelations combined with early reports about patient maltreatment at the York Asylum helped to promote a renewed campaign for national lunacy reform and the establishment of the 18 of an 1815 House of Commons Select Committee and Madhouses on Madhouses which examined the conditions under which the insane were confined in county asylums, private madhouses, charitable asylums, and in the lunatic wards of the poor law workhouses. In June of 1816, Thomas Monroe, principal physician, resigned as a result of scandal when he was accused of wanting inhumanity toward his patients. Dr. T.B. Hyslop uh, came to the hospital in 1888 and rose to be physician in charge, bringing the hospital into the 20th century and retiring in 1911. In 1930, the hospital moved to the suburbs of Croydon on the site of the Monk's Orchard House between Eden Park, Beckham, West Wickham, and Shirley. The old hospital and its grounds were bought by Lord Rothermere and presenting the London City Council for use and presented to the London County Council for use as a park. The central part of the building was retained and became home to the Imperial War Museum in 1936. The hospital was resorbed into the National Health Service in 1948. So they just repurposed the the building. Yeah. Gotcha. They kept what could be saved. Right. Yeah. Yeah, because it was... Mm. In 1997, the hospital started planning celebrations of its 750th anniversary. The service user's perspective was not to be included, however, and members of the psychiatric survivors movement saw nothing to celebrate in either to the, the original bedlam or in the current practices of mental health professionals towards those in need of care. A campaign called Reclaim Bedlam was launched by Pete Shaughnessy, reported by hundreds of patients and ex-patients and widely reported in the media. A sit-in was held outside the earlier Bedlam site at the Imperial War Museum. We're we're on what year now? We're in 97, 1997. Jesus Christ. Yeah. Um... The historian Roy Porter called the Bethlehem Hospital a symbol for man's inhumanity to man for callousness and cruelty. In 97, the Bethlehem Gallery was established to showcase the work of artists that have experienced mental distress. Okay. In 99, Bethlehem Royal Hospital became part of the South London... So, hold on, hold on, stop, stop, stop. I'm so sorry. I was coordinating a thing. Mm-hmm. I, I missed a couple of sentences. Go back like a paragraph if you can. Okay. In 97, the hospital planned, started planning celebrations for its 750th anniversary. When did they close? They're uh, still open. Fuck me. Yeah. Um, the service user's perspective was not to be included, however, and members of the psychiatric survivors movement saw nothing to celebrate in either the original bedlam or in the current practices of mental health professionals towards those in need of care. Hmm. A campaign called Reclaim Bedlam was launched by Pete Shaughnessy, supported by hundreds of patients and ex-patients and widely reported to the media. A sit-in was held outside the earlier Bedlam site and the, of, at the Imperial War Museum. The historian Ray, Roy Porter called the Bethlehem Hospital a symbol for man's inhumanity to man for callousness and cruelty. Hmm. 
In 97, again, the Bethlehem Gallery was established to showcase the works of art uh, that have ex- the work of artists that have experienced mental distress. Mm. In 1999, Bethlehem Royal Hospital became part of the South London and Maudsley NHS Foundation Trust, um, NHS Foundation Trust, along with the Maudsley Hospital in Camberwell and the merger of mental health service in Lamberth. Or Lambeth and Lewisham took place. Ugh. In 2001, uh, SLAM, which was the anagram for the South London and Maudsley mm-hmm. Foundation, uh, sought planning permission for the expanded medium secure unit and extensive works to improve security, much of which would be on metropolitan op- open land. Local residents groups organized mass meetings to oppose the application with accusations that it was unfair that most patients could be from inner London areas and were therefore not locals and that drug use was rife in and around the hospital. This is 2001. Bromley Council refused the application with Croydon Council also objecting. However, the office of the deputy prime minister overturned the decision in 2003 and development started. The 89-bed, 33.5 million pound unit named River House opened in February 2008. It is the most significant development on the site since the hospital opened in 1930. Now, Aslani Lewis, known as Sinny, age 23, died in 2010 at Bethlehem Royal Hospital after police subjected him to prolonged restraint of a type known to be dangerous. Neither police nor medical staff intervened when Lewis became unresponsive. At coroner's request, the jury found many failures by both police and medical staff, which played a part in Lewis's death. They said the excessive force, pain compliance, techniques, and multiple mechanical restraints were disproportionate and unreasonable. No way. They almost always are. On the balance of probability, this contributed to the literally cause of death. the only way that a restraint like that is necessary is if you are a such a danger to yourself and others that you literally would hurt yourself if you could move. Right, like that's literally the only situation, and even then, they try their goddamnedest not to do that shit. Like that's how bad it is. Right, like you can't. This is why I'm about to get political again for the first time in a long time. This is why we say fuck the police. Is because if this person died, you said 2010? Yeah. Like, that's modern. Yeah. That is, I don't know how to describe, like, you Cell phones exist. You cannot reform something that old. You have to fucking get rid of it and start again. Like, we can't reform police to be safe for black people for the reason that police are literally not just spiritually and like some of the departments were like slave catchers. Some of the men who work in police departments are direct descendants of fucking slave catchers who still work as police. You cannot, we, you can't reform that. That has to be done away with, and you have to come up with something different for anything to work. That's that's where we're at. Like you, you can't just you can't like I can't reform. 
something so ingrained in society. I'm trying so hard to come up with an analogy for it. And it's, I just, there isn't there one. isn't one, and I think that's part of. Nah, I had it my yeah, it's broken hard. sentence out. I can't. It's hard to think about. Like it's it's just you you can't. These things are generational, and you cannot. Oh, excuse me. Like you can't change your grandmother's recipe until after she's gone. That's what I'm trying to tell y'all. It's like we're still working with Granny's recipe, and that shit is disgusting. And I say that as a person who, if you fucking come at me about my grandmother's cooking, I will shank your ass. <laughs> but like, that's what it is. Like you, you can't change that recipe until until your matriarch is gone, because that's not even a good metaphor. But like, it is close. Like you, you again. You, I just can't. I just have to repeat it. You cannot reform a system that old and ingrained in its ways to the point where even in 2010 like the year i was i think if i'm remembering my time correctly which is debatable but i'm pretty sure like my accident happened no this was after my accident but anyway it's like you know, this is close to the time that I was in these, uh, you know, mental hospitals and shit. Like people, you know, are in hospitals and getting treatment in this time period while people are dying because of the quote unquote treatment that they're getting at places like this. We got to do better. We just got to. So Ajibola Lewis, who is Olasani's uh, mother, claimed a nurse at Maudsley Hospital where Lewis had been earlier warned against allowing his transfer to Bethlehem. She said to me, don't look, don't let him go to that. Don't let him go to Bethlehem. Don't let him go there. A doctor later, later persuaded her to take her son to Bethlehem hospital. She was concerned about the conditions there. It was a mess. She told the court. I was very, it was very confused. A lot of activity, a lot of shouting. I was not happy. I was confused. Police were trained to view Lewis's behavior as a medical emergency, but the jury found police failed to act on this. The jury found that the police failed to follow their training, which requires them to place an unresponsive person into the recovery position and, if necessary, administer life support. On the balance of probable, uh, probability, this, this contributed to the cause of death. A doctor did not act when Lewis became unresponsive while his heart rate dramatically slowed. The Independent Police Complaints Commission first cleared officers over the death, but following pressure from the family, they scrapped their conclusions and started a new inquiry. The IPCC was planning disciplinary action against some of the police officers involved. Deborah Coles of the charity Inquest, who has supported the Lewis family throughout their campaign, uh, said the jury had reached the most damning possible conclusions on the actions of police and medics. This was a most horrific death. Conclusions on the action of police and medics. What? Most damning possible conclusion on the uh, actions of police and medics. Sorry. This was a most horrific death. 11 police officers were involved in holding down a terrified young man until his complete Jeez. collapse. Legs and hands bound in limb restraints while mental health staff stood by. Officers knew the dangers of this restraint but chose to go against clear, unequivocal training. Evidence heard at the inquest begs the question of how racial stereotyping informed Sinny's brutal treatment. 
A disciplinary hearing conducted by the Metropolitan Police found the officers had not committed misconduct. The hearing was criticized by the family because it was held behind closed doors with neither press nor public scrutiny. In 2015, a 15-year-old named Chris Brennan died of asphyxiation while at Bethlehem Hospital after repeated self-harming. The coroner found lack of proper risk assessment and lack of a care plan contributed to his death. The hospital claimed staffing problems and low morale were factors. Lessons were learned, and the adolescent unit where Brennan died was assessed as good in 2016. Jesus fucking Christ. I just were... Yeah. We're one president ago. Yeah. Is... In November yeah. of 2017, a bill was passed, deba- was debated on in the House of Commons that would require psychiatric hospitals to give more detailed information about how and when restraints are used. This bill is referred to as Sinney's Law. In November of 2018, the bill received royal assent as the Mental Health Unit's Use of Force Act in 2018. So, yeah, the more things change, the more they stay the same. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah, this one made me almost as uncomfortable as uh, Mengele. Yeah. Or if if not worse. Yeah. But not Tansler uncomfortable? No. No, that was fun uncomfortable. Oh, okay. That was that was tense, like, oh, my God, is it going to happen? <laughs> or will they, won't they? <laughs> but... <laughs> The Ross and Rachel effect. Uh, this is just yeah, a terrible is, reminder. Yeah, this is a piss you off kind of episode. Yeah, we should have done them. Should have done them in reverse. Yeah, yeah. Should have done mayhem last. We should have had mayhem yeah. last. Oh well. But that's yeah. That's it. Uh, one happy one eh, episode. But trying to get back in the swing of things. Um, yeah. I'm thinking next week, if you're not ready with Cropsy, then we will do Werewolves and the Beast of Givaldin. Okay. That's fine. Yeah, I still have some stuff to cover for life changes, but I have a rant if we (laughs) want to do that real quick. As a separate thing? I mean, I've already done it in the episode. (laughs) Yeah. Nah, I won't do it today. You guys will get a rant soon from me. I've recorded a few of them, so you shouldn't be wanting for one right now anyway. <laughs> um, shouts out to my patrons. We appreciate every single one of you. Yep. All of you. All, all six of you. All six of you. <laughs> and, oh, my God. <laughs> we didn't tell the crazy story of, of the, the responses we got this week through Messenger. Oh, my God. Oh, yeah, yeah. I told a dude to figure out what an ad was. Yeah. Yeah. So for anyone who doesn't know, um, we got credit from Facebook to run an ad. So we ran an ad. And one guy hacked. Yeah, kept yeah I'm hacking he, my He just page. kept sending messages. Yeah. He responded to the Block. ad, and it sends an automated message. And so he responds. He's like, hackers, hackers, stop hacking my Facebook. Yeah. So Don replied, very nicely uh we're not we're not hackers we're not hacking your facebook you responded to an ad so it's an automated message we don't control where it goes you responded yeah and he was like block hackers stop hackers yeah <laughs> so then i sent a message and then ruben came in less polite a little a little <laughs> I, I kept it together you did. for the most part <laughs> but the other guy 
Holy shit. Oh, don't even read it. Oh, I'm going to. Oh, no. Do it, because I haven't seen this week. Oh, you didn't uh, see this? I don't be reading the messages, really. Okay. Don't, so, don't give if him If I see one while it's happening, I'll sometimes oh, sorry, I'll look this at is, it. But. This is Hacker Guy. Hold on. I didn't even read the whole thing. I just blocked him. <laughs> just don't give this guy credit at all. Don't say his name on Facebook or anything. Here he is. Okay. <clears throat> Let's listen to the wonderful, wonderful uh, urban poetry of this dude who, again, responded to a fake art, not a fake ad, responded to an ad. So we got automated response. Well, I'm a legend. I call my dick Goliath. Because I fuck like a giant. I'm looking for a giant cock and a tight pussy. I'm everybody's booty because I'm a treasure. That was the yeah, first Yeah, it was message. something that somebody messaged to us yeah. on the Facebook page. Oh, like, okay. I get that. I get it. I, his, I get what you're going for. His second response. I don't care about urban legends, but I want to be a Bible rapper and porn star and hope I can still have a wife because life is crazy and I want to be a sissy slut. I mean, live your dream, dude. <laughs> Straight up. Live that dream. You, hey, don't let your dreams be dreams. There you go. <laughs> if you say so. Just going to recite the whole. <laughs> do it. Bit for him. Just do it. You know that's part of like a 45 minute yes, long. Okay, I have. Yeah. Yes. Yep. Stay, keep be aware of Shia LaBeouf. All right, guys. So we're going to wrap it up because uh, we had some funny at the end of there. Yeah, it's an ADHD kind of episode and I am about 80 out. So Heard. on behalf of everybody, I'm Don. I've been Ruben. I've been shut down <laughs> <laughs> and we'll see you next time bye everybody bye bye